They're world famous in Perth. And they've just popped in for a cuppa and a chat. Welcome to Katie Lamb's Personalities. Thank you so much for tuning in again. Or if this is your first, why haven't you listened to my first four episodes? Thank you so much. Go back and listen to them. Uh, my name is Katie Lamb. This is Personalities, the podcast, episode five. And look, I'm not going to lie, it's a good one. Today's personality is former AFL legend and coach for the West Coast Eagles and North Melbourne. She's an icon for the LGBTIQA plus community. And if you haven't seen her documentary yet, do yourself a favour. It's called Revealed Danielle Laidley, Two Tribes, and it's on stand right now. Danielle Laidley, thank you so much and welcome. And what a lot of people don't realise is that you and your partner Donna, uh, who's just sitting over there at the moment, uh, have actually been living in Perth for the last couple of years. How have you been enjoying? it so far? Uh, really good. Look, we sort of, we're here um, three weeks, Melbourne three weeks, here mm. three weeks. But as we go along and now we've started our disability business here in Perth, it's panning out that way. We're spending more time here and probably less less in Melbourne. Great. Well, we're happy to have you in Perth. Now, you're you're speaking at the Crown Perth Pride Luncheon um, and for the first time your partner Donna as well is going to be taking the stage with you, doing a bit of a Q&A and talking about uh, your work fighting for social justice and speaking out for the transgender community. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, it'll be more around my story, but it'll also be about, you know, leadership and being pioneers in society. Mm. Um, we all want to be loved. We all want to love. You know, we all want to be accepted. We all want to be ourselves um, and I don't think that's too much to ask so for the people that are going to be in the room and I think there's going to be quite a lot oh yeah you know it'll be great for those people um, in the Perth community to have a listen and and take on some more on board you know some of the stuff that I'll talk about from a book uh, your book don't look away um, released over a year ago now and your very, very powerful documentary on Stan revealed Danny Laidley at uh, Two Tribes. It's been a big couple of years for you. How was it watching the documentary? Um, the first time we watched it, which was in the really early stages of editing, within the first 90 seconds, uh, Donna and I were in tears for the whole 98 minutes. Mm. Um, it was very raw. It was very confronting, as it was at times when we were we were making it. But invariably, we were very happy with what we're able to put together. You know, there's a lot of life lessons in there, um, a lot of mental health, a lot of stuff about gender dysphoria, um, about the disease of addiction, um, about self-harm. And these topics don't get probably talked about enough. So hopefully, you know, anyone who was going through gender dysphoria or had a brother, mother, auntie, uncle, whoever it might be, might take something out of it. Anyone who's been struggling with their, with their mental health. Um, the reality is with all these things, we can't do it our, ourselves. And that was one of the things that I did um, and it ended up in a car crash. Mm. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't want any other person to, to go through that, particularly how it came out with the Victorian police. And we'll talk about that just a little bit later on. In your doco, one of the first scenes is that you recall being a little boy and you're watching your mum do a makeup tutorial and you stole the nail polish and you put it on your fingers and you loved how it felt and you loved how it looked but then you threw it away and you never saw that nail polish again correct it's wild to think that at such a young age you knew that society 
would see that as being wrong. Talk to me about that. Yeah, um, I suppose initially it was a sense of calmness. What is this that I'm feeling at such a young age? But then very quickly realising, firstly, I stole the nail polish. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And, and secondly, little boys don't wear nail polish. And I thought I was going to get in really big trouble. You know, so you, you get educated and, and stereotyped into your thinking from very, from very young, and that's what happens in society. But, you know, um, sometimes um, nature doesn't always get it right. For many, many years, feeling the way that I have and not knowing what it was, too scared to talk to people about it, too scared to think, you know, what? why am I feeling this way? What is it? Is it me? It was pretty daunting. Mm. Your partner, Donna, who you dated in school, um, she came on and she said that she felt a bit rejected by you whilst you two were dating because she would ask to, you know, hang out, catch up, as you do. And uh, you said that you were always studying. <laughs> but I never studied. <laughs> <laughs> she, she said she later found out that obviously that was, you know, you were experimenting and, mm. and figuring out sort of, I guess, who you were. So is that what ended up making you guys break up during that time? Uh, no, I think Donna dropped me for the next person that was um, <laughs> maybe because they would um, see her after school and I and I wouldn't. <laughs> no, that's been that's been nasty. That's been nasty. Um, obviously, you two then ended up uh, reconnecting, and I would love to know what's the what's the main question that people ask about your relationship with Donna? Um, they probably don't ask me a lot. They know the history. And they know our our history. It probably comes more from Donna mm. and there's a great line in, in the documentary where she says, how can you not just love another human being? And that seems to really have resonated with a lot of people. Um, we've been stopped in the street when we're together or at the shops or anything and a lot of people say, oh, Donna, that line, that really resonated, you know, with me. Because the reality is we're, we're all different and to accept someone for, for how they, they are I think is just such a wonderful thing. And, and, and that's the best part about our relationship. We can be ourselves. We can be crazy, zany in our own little world. And, you know, we love all the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we love sport. We love cricket. We love football. We love going down to the beach. Donna loves the wine. Um, I love my bourbon. Um, <laughs> y- y- you know, um, and we can sit there and we can talk. Uh, most nights like we do for for hours. I think as well what people forget is that sexuality or preference is different to gender identity. Like what she says is she just falls in love with the person of who you are mm. and she always has been in love with the person who you are. So mm. it's one of those relationships that I think a lot of people look up to now because that's what so many people search for for a whole lifetime and you guys found it so early on. Yeah, and... It, it, What's interesting about that, you know, sexual orientation is who you're actually attracted to. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I can, we can say this now and we laugh about it. Um, people asked on a, you know, so how long have you liked women? Mm. Um, you know, oh, I didn't know you were a lesbian. Yes. Um, she goes, well, I'm not. Mm. Um, I love Danielle, um, no matter what she is. Yes. Um, and I think that's um, an awesome thing. For people to take away. Um, if they're looking for a gold nugget out of the uh, documentary, I would say that's it. Back with more of Katie Lamb's personalities in a tick. 
Then to football. So a phenomenal football player known as the Junkyard Dog. Okay. Can you tell me what you were like as a footballer and how you actually got that nickname? Um, I was always super competitive, uh, hated to lose, and in those days would do anything uh, to win. And I had to play with that vigour and real intensity to get the most out of myself. And that was because, well, when I first went down to West Perth, I suppose, you know, I became a workaholic. That was the first time the disease of addiction actually got hold of me. And I hadn't realised that for all these years until over the last four or five years, peeling the layers back and, you know, we got to that point. So when my gender dysphoria was really roaring and really loud, I had my football career mm. and I would stick my head in my football career to sort of help balance my life, so to speak. And then it, it became a vicious circle because, so while I'm sticking my head in football and then you build this persona and I got labelled the, the junkyard dog, which I just hated and still do to a degree. And I, I know it's a, a term of endearment, but what it was representing was even further away from the person who I really was, I was and I found say, that really difficult. Because it was such a contrast, the term a junkyard dog, and then with who you were really as a person, two completely different things. But I guess people saw it as almost championing you because for the football player that you were, yep. but then you were sort of struggling with how that sounded and how you really felt as a person. Oh, yeah, and anyone who <laughs> would come up to me through the public, mm. uh, particularly, oh, the junkyard dog, and I would, like, pull them up straight away mm -hmm. and say, hey, don't call me that. Yeah. Um, there was only one person that I actually allowed uh, someone to call me that, and that was Wayne Swass. Now, he mm. was a big part of my um, journey at North Melbourne and our friendship now, and, in, and he was fantastic in the, in the documentary, you know, because he went through, you know, some issues as well with himself. And we both sort of knew we were going through something mm -hmm. um, but back in the early mid late 90s you didn't have those conversations well exceeding so highly at football um achieving so much success all the while hiding who you were the struggle during that time just must have been so exhausting very exhausting um to live a compartmentalized life so having to be this person to these people this person to these people playing and then into into coaching as AFL footballers, we, and this is what I've learned now, as AFL footballers, we get put on a pedestal. Yeah. Whether a good person, a bad person, or an indifferent person, we have this talent in this game that our country loves. Mm -hmm. And what I've also found now is, being me, how much shame, embarrassment, fear, and uneducated gossip about, you know, a minority group like the transgender community. And I find that now really difficult to uh, to live with. Shame, embarrassment, gossip, all those sorts of things. Obviously, the football environment, stereotypically, you know, you know firsthand how it was for you back then. And we have progressed so much as a society. We've come a really, really long way. But does it still surprise you that there are no openly gay players in the AFL? Knowing what you dealt with, which was in my personal opinion, so much harder than sexual preference. Yeah, I think, so even with myself now, within football 
world or football family, people that I've known, people that I've played with, who I coached, the AFL right up to um, Gil McLaughlin and now Andrew Dillon have been wonderfully understanding, wonderfully su- supportive and have, em- have embraced uh, me, which I'm very, very uh, lucky because not all transgender people get that. And let's face it, there are gay footballers out there. Yes. And families probably know, the clubs know, their teammates know. And like for me, that's a safe space. Mm-hmm. It's when you step out and um, are labelled, not just as the footballer, but as the gay footballer, the burden of that um, and the commentary around that. Society, we, we, we have come a long way, but we've still got a long oh. way to come. And, you know, the, with this sort of stuff, there's no, there's no finishing line. You know, it's always a work in progress. There was a really emotional scene just that made me uh, remember a really emotional scene when you were over, I think it was Adam Simpson's house in the doco. Lovely house, by the way. Um, Peter Bell was there, Spider Burton, a few other guys, and, and they're all just there and they're asking you questions and, and you're just answering them really openly and honestly. Um, but one question kind of struck a chord with me. One of them said, do you regret not doing this sooner? What's your answer to that? It's really hard to be uh, definitive around that. Once I, I got to know, you know, and I always perhaps thought I would get here. I just didn't know when, when. or how. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the big things was um, my children, putting them first mm-hmm. um, and giving them an opportunity in life and bringing them up. So I didn't care what happened to me, so to speak, you know, as long as they were okay, they were adults. I would work it out as I, I went along. Now, now I'm here, I probably wouldn't change much at all. Perhaps how it became public and how I self-sabotage without having the conversations that you know I can have now. I think that would relate so much to so many people because even for me, I sort of, I came out when I was um, 28 and people say, oh, do you, you know, when did you know? Well, I knew a few years beforehand, but I was still filled with shame and embarrassment and scared to disappoint my family. And so in a way it's hard to answer because it's like, well, yeah, I, I wish I did come out earlier, but at the same time I wasn't mentally sort of or emotionally ready. And I guess that's what's so important for everyone to know is that you're all on your own journey, but there's so much support around. And when I did, it was like everyone was like, yeah, cool, next. You yep. know, nobody cares. Yes. Yeah. So, and and that, that's that's a really uh, good line because um, pe- people have often said to me, um, so when did you decide to become a woman? Mm. Say so, no. Um, this is how I felt all my life. Yes. Obviously, from a youngster, I you don't know what it is. There's no Google. There's no resources, and you're on your own journey, so to speak. You know, and until you're ready, and there's so many different layers to that. I wish I had have got the same uh, response when you you came out. Would have been so much easier for me. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Gender dysphoria is what a lot of people still don't really understand. And uh, in the doco, you said that it was meant to be a, a 30-minute appointment, I think, um, with your – was that a GP or who was it? Uh, Sorry, endocrinologist. In, in, yeah, I can't say that word. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it ended up being about four hours mm. and you burst into tears. Me watching it, I was in tears. I think everybody was in tears. But it was almost this sense of relief because there was a name for what you – we're feeling in how you were born with gender dysphoria. Can you educate people a little bit about that? 
so gender dysphoria, um, you, you can't outrun gender dysphoria. It's this feeling that I've had for many, many, many years that my outside wasn't congruent from how I felt in the inside, my soul. And it took me a long time to get to understand that. And I've probably known for over 20 years now that there was resources and internet and, you know, I, I had some very, very close counsel that I would ask lots of questions. And, you know, I was thinking, yeah, I, that's me, that's me, mm. that's me. But I was too too scared to go and get a proper diagnosis yep. or the fear of being found out who I was going into gender clinics and that was really, really scary. So because of your profile, mm. everyone knowing who you were, yep. even just walking into a clinic yep. could be seen. Oh, gosh. Yep. So it was, it was, you know, probably the last four or five years, I was really positive. And it was getting harder and harder to, to live. The gender dysphoria was getting louder and louder. It was very difficult to live a normal life mm. without all this noise in your head. Then you just can't complete normal tasks, you can't go to work because it's just very difficult. And so that was that was an interesting thing. But when I got told, it was like, thank God, I'm not crazy, <laughs> um, as a lot of people might, may think. And it was a load off my shoulders in one way, and I knew I couldn't live the way it was going. It was a, a freight train running out of control. Mm -hmm. um, so I there was only one choice for me, and... You know, just after that, you know, look, there was a few uh, self-harm issues, which, you know, thinking that maybe it might be easier if I'm not here. Um, but then, you know, I thought of my kids again, and I wanted to be here for me and being me and for them and my family and my friends. So this was probably the hardest choice, but it was the no doubt the best choice. And... At that same time or around that same time, you ended up finding that was at that nightclub or at where you ended up meeting a bunch of um, trans women. There was a sort of a community that you found, but again, that was a risk of you going in there. Yeah. So initially the first time that I met a few trans women was when I was still playing at West Coast. So this is like late 80s. Right. We were in a club. I saw them. There were some that I just did not know. Mm. Uh, that were transgender. Mm -hmm. um, there were some that um, perhaps I thought were. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think any of the boys who were with me thought that. No. Um, so anyway, we had this great night socially and invariably I was just like talking to them really quietly, yeah. just like chipping away, trying to find, you know, how they felt, what happened, what. Was this before or after you knew about gender dysphoria? Uh, this is This is probably... Um, before I really knew. Yes, um, okay. The first time when I actually thought, oh, wow. I can remember it was probably a year or two before that. It was probably around 1987. I remember on the way to Eagles Rehabilitation Training, I think it's in Wembley, and I stopped at a newsagent. I might have bought the paper or something. There was a magazine um, there. It had this gorgeous woman on it, and it had a Chula transsexual model. And I thought... What's that? Mm. So that pricked my interest. Unfortunately, back in those days, it was a penthouse or a Playboy, and they had the plastic <gasps> wrappers um, around it. <laughs> trying but, to do the whole read yeah. in between. 
Yep. So I um, thought, right, I forget this, mm-hmm. uh, which I did, and I started reading it. So um, her name was Carolyn Cossie, and she'd just been, played a major part in the latest uh, Bond film. So she was an actress in the UK. No one knew she was transgender, and she was outed by the British press. Mm. And so there was a huge, big article about it, and I'm reading it thinking, oh, my God. This is what I've, you know, for the last 12, 13, 14 years. So there's something in that. So it was little bits and pieces, talking to people, reading things like that. But there wasn't much around prior to the internet. Back with more of Katie Lamb's personalities in a tick. I want to talk about the mugshot incident. And I know this was so horrific for you and devastating uh, for you and your family and your friends and it, you go into it in the doco. Um, however, for those who don't know about it, um, can you explain the mugshot incident? So the photo and what happened at the police station, um, I can't take any responsibility for because that's what they did, um, which I'll, I'll come back to in a minute. But I was in such a bad state with self-sabotage. I hadn't slept for like nine days. And we were in a property dispute with a former partner and I just I'm trying to get the apartment back and I just didn't know what to do I'd just been diagnosed with gender dysphoria my mental health was really struggling I was self-sabotaging and I didn't know how to get off this toxic dance floor so I went down to in front of the property stood in front of the property rang the police and said I'm breaking this intervention order Mm -hmm. you better come and arrest me and that was my way out of, of probably calling out for help Yes. Um, so with that, within seconds, I was arrested. Now, if I had my time again there, I wouldn't do that. But I was too embarrassed to reach out or talk to anyone about where my life had plummeted. Um, yeah, so I got arrested. It was about 8.30 on a Saturday night, I think, in St Kilda. And St Kilda's a pretty social, pretty busy area on a Saturday night. So anyway, I get taken into the police station and there would be a dozen or so uniformed and plain clothes members of the, the police force standing in a big semicircle. I am looking dishevelled, not slept for nine days, probably the most vulnerable I had been in my whole life. Mm. And I'm in the interview room telling them what I was being going through. So outside the interview room, it's like sort of double-sided glass, and I could sort of make out people moving uh, behind it. And a police officer got his mobile phone out and took uh, the photo, which was the one on the front page of me in the interview room, and it went viral um, Mm. very, very quickly. Yeah. So that was obviously horrific and so devastating, very hurtful with how it all came out. You said, you know, it was so disappointing. That's how your, your family, your children found out. But at the same time a very large group of people really started to rally around you and you did have a lot of support. Was there any form of relief in in the sense that it was, what, a kind of a catch-22? It was horrific, don't get me wrong, but it was out. And I don't know, I guess you were finally able to just be like, yep, this is who I am and this is my truth. The narrative um, when it first came out was very unkind. Yes. Very unkind. Uh, uh, stalker, um, cross-dresser, uh, drug addict. You know, all the things that um, weren't, weren't me. 
when your mental health, um, it's not an excuse, it's, it's, it's a reason because that's not the type of person that I am. But what, what I will say um, when you say the double-edged sword, so mm. I had been talking with my gender psych for probably two months leading up to that about, okay, this is our journey. What does it look like as we move forward? What's the strategy? Right. Family, friends, the whole box and dice. So we had just written a little plan up to go to the AFL to see if they would stand with me, beside me in, I hate the word coming out, but, um, you know, so we were sort of trying to plan it so we could do it properly. That was well and truly in the works, um, but that got ripped up and with, with what happened. So, so you actually had a plan to mm, do it. Yep. But because your mental health at that time was spiralling, that's why you called the police because as you used the word self-sabotage, mm. And then that's right. Okay. So yeah. some people see it as your cry for help and that's kind mm. of almost helped you come out even though it was horrific, yeah. but really you actually had a plan in place. Yeah. So I wish, you know, I made a few mistakes um, along the way and if I could have my time back again, um, I would certainly love to get that because I wouldn't have rung the police. Yeah. I wouldn't have arrested. It wouldn't be come out like it has. And it may have taken a little longer. Um, but it would have been a hell of a lot smoother. Hindsight's a bitch though, right? Oh, yeah. Woulda, yes. shoulda, coulda? Yes, of course. Um, of course. <laughs> that police officer, he was let go immediately? Do we know? Uh, no. Um, what? So there was a huge inquiry into it. There was something like over 500 police officers were interviewed who got the photo sent and the guy who took the picture, there was a group of police who had a WhatsApp group and would post all this sort of stuff. And right. it was quite horrific with the comments along with it. So there was a huge investigation. They, had to, they went through that. So there was, um, I think, about 39 people who were charged with some misconduct, whatever. Mm. They got a, um, a slap on the wrist. Then there was another five or six who got charged with what they call disgusting behaviour. So in the first time in Victoria Police Force's history, in the internal process, each one of those police officers paid me conversation of between, depending on their involvement in it, was, yeah, I can't remember the figure, it was pretty low. <laughs> to and pay you, sorry? To me. Right. Yeah. And then um, there was three police officers who were criminally charged um, and they all got off. Um, they all kept their jobs. What? I hate them. <laughs> um, yeah, so two end up leaving the police force. One went back to his job and believe it or not, through my investigation, while this was going on, um, what I'm led to believe, one of the other police officers was taking photos of corpses. Oh my God. And yep. And so he got investigated and he's finally just, probably in the last six months, lost his job. Oh, my God. Yeah. What is wrong with people? I didn't even realise they had a thing called disgusting behaviour, but that is, that's a pretty good word for it, I guess, because that is disgusting behaviour. And look, that's just a really quick snapshot of what happened. But it's crazy that 500-odd people were investigated, all of them got off with a slap on the wrist, essentially, and a small sum of money paid to you, mm. which essentially 
took a massive toll on your life, your mental health, your family, your friends, everybody around you. Yeah. And then from there, there was um, a civil case right. with what happened. So that's very confidential, but we're happy with how it turned out. And there's been some, uh, some positives with the Victorian police in some of the work that I've done for them. Amazing that it actually took you doing the investigation <laughs> to kind of find, well, you're kind of doing their job for them, really. So maybe you should get a job with the police because you do a uh, better job at it. No, thanks. <laughs> Back with more of Katie Lamb's personalities in a tick. Hey, how much footage for your documentary reveal, Danielle Laidley, Two Tribes, was actually filmed because it was only a 90-minute documentary, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, I think it was about 90, 90, 89 or 90. How yeah. much footage was uh, there? About 350 hours. Wow. Of footage that we filmed. Okay. So then on top of that, take out all the um, the actors, like the little the kid that, that they brought in. Yeah, the little reenactments, um, yep. The archival footage of family videos and all the, the football stuff, the hours that we shot may have been 70 minutes. So 350 hours for 70 minutes. So it's a huge process to get a narrative, get a structure, fill in the blanks. And look, we didn't do that. Mm. We, we sort of started to see from the end product, which we just loved. Mm. Um, you know, the directors did a, um, did a great job with that. They did. But I'm going to need 350 episodes, sorry, <laughs> because the 70 minutes of actual footage, it was such a great, I think it was just really powerful, an insight into your life. But I think as well, the whole community of what so many people are sort of um, dealing with every day and more and more now. So I just, I felt it was so um, powerful. I don't know what else to kind of use. Yeah, well, look, we, we, we're grateful. We, we probably look at it through different lens mm. because we've watched it grow. And you've lived it. We've lived it. And then there was lots of toing and throwing, even th- through the um, filming and, and all that sort of stuff. And I remember when I was writing the book, Craig Sylvie, who wrote the foreword in the book, who's a great West Australian author, he always said, while you're writing it, while you're filming, you can make as many mistakes as you like. Mm. But once it's finished and you hand it over to the world, it's there forever. Yeah. Yeah. So it was dot the I's, cross the T's, go back, do it again, have a look. Mm. There was like lots of legal stuff that we had to get done. We Everyone who appeared on the video had to sign off on, on that. If they didn't sign off on that, their faces were blurred out. And there was, the, you know, the police staff that we went through, some stuff that I can't talk about. You know, all that had to be legal. It's such a huge process. Is there anything that you filmed that didn't make the documentary that you really wish did make the documentary that you can talk about? Oh, look, lots of lots of interviews. I remember doing an interview with Dennis Comedy at Leader Oval about at that time at West Perth um, uh, together. There was a lot of filming at the um, at the first Mardi Gras we went to. Yeah, wow. um, and we had such a hoot of a time. <laughs> what else was there? Uh, at the at the girls, um, a lot of AFLW stuff. Yeah. Um, at the Pride round and um, you know stuff like that. There were some close people to me who didn't make the cut, and that's really hard because you know they give their time, and they're really looking forward to it, and we were the ones that had to say, well, unfortunately, you know, the directors of this is their storyline, 
and that was that was disappointing. But the ones who didn't make it on camera in the credits and the thank yous at the end, we made sure we put everyone. Yeah, that was that was a part of it. Yeah. Speaking of AFLW, <laughs> okay. Now we are going to go here. Now there's been a lot of talk about you wanting to go for head coach at West Coast Eagles for the AFLW. Now, you are an incredibly experienced coach in the AFL. And from what, you know, we certainly um, saw on the doco as well, you had a very traditional style of coaching. So do you think you would have to change if you were to get head coach at the in AFLW? How do you think you would have to change your style of coaching for women? Um, my style of coaching um, from when I first started off, coaching has changed enormously. Yeah. So, yes, some things stay the same, but some things change. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things that have probably changed are the people and relationship side of it. And the amount of time that I've spent coaching high-level uh, basketball with my girls at basketball um, from 18 to 23, 24, a lot of the... Um, work, leadership and management and coaching stuff that I've done in Victoria in female prisons with the prison staff and the prisoners themselves um, will hold me in good stead. And yes, coaching males is different to coaching females uh, in some respects, but in other respects it's the same. I guess, uh, you know, being women, we are emotionally driven. So a lot of um, being coached is about sort of connecting emotionally with the women so that they trust you and then they can learn from you and things like that. Whereas a lot of, you know, guys are just like, tell me what I need to do. You know what I mean? So I feel like you would have such good emotional connections Mm. With the women there, plus all the experience, I think you'd be amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, with with males, it, it's very much like when you're talking to them um, and however that conversation goes, it's about the task. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll show you or, right, that's what you want me to do. I'll, I'll go and do it. With females, it's the first thing that comes to mind is not task, mm. it's emotion. <laughs> and so it's working through that and getting them an understanding as to why um, we're doing it this way <laughs> and what so and what's your part in it. and yeah. that, So it's different, but it's the same. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I'm just laughing because that is so true. I feel like you can tell boys just go out there and do it and then all of a sudden girls, they're like, I need to feel connected to why I'm doing that. <laughs> That's but, so uh, Yeah. I will say, though, um, uh, <laughs> young males are more and more like that. They are. The younger generation are becoming a lot more soft is not the right word, but you know, more Mm. sensitive. And Mm. I think, I think, which is a really good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. How did it sort of pan out for you with the head coach role at the West Coast Eagles for the AFLW? It was organised for me to speak to the players and staff leading into Pride Round. Yes. And then it just coincided with the coach stepping away. And then it coincided with Perth being a very small community and me being seen at the Eagles facility, um, and then it sort of just grew legs from there. So, yeah, I would like to coach again. So anything that's out there, we're, we're going to have a look at. Back with more of Katie Lamb's personalities in a tick. Just before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you, uh, there's been a lot of controversy surrounding trans women competing in women's sports. 
Leah Thomas, a swimmer, obviously that all sparked up a huge debate. So I know, you know, Caitlin Jenner, she's come out and she's very much against it. Are you just able to share like your views on it? Yeah, I, I'm pretty rock solid on my thoughts and it's taking me quite a while to get to this point. So you use the example of Leah Thomas, mm-hmm. who's competed in a male program at elite level training. So it'll be like us in our mid twenties after eight or nine years of elite level training, switching programs. Yeah. And even with, you know, going on hormone replacement therapy and all that sort of stuff, I think Leah Thomas would have a competitive advantage. I think whether it was myself or Embers switching programs would have a competitive advantage. Yeah. For how long? I don't know. That's the science of it. The more science that we get, the more research that we get, the the better decisions we will make. But generally what happens with any change, the first person who walks through the door of change generally gets a a punch in the nose. Mm. And I've copped it in in some ways and perhaps Leah Thomas has as, um, as well. When you talk about community sport and football clubs where I grew up in or cricket clubs, they are so important to the community and culture of Australia. So if you haven't had that elite level training and you're coming through from a you know young age and you're playing community level, I think you should be allowed to play because I think what's important is for people to be supported, guided, accepted and be a part of something and belong to a club or whatever and be inclusive and I think that's critically important for us growing culturally um, as a country and it's important for not just for the people who identify as transgender. I've had plenty of males who have messaged me and said I stopped playing football because I was gay. So that's another issue but I'm pretty firm on on that, mm. um, you know, because look, elite level sport is what one, two percent of the people that we're talking about. And for me, the science worked that out. Don't worry about that. <laughs> um, but for, for the community, if there's someone at 11, 12, 13 who've transitioned from male to female and they're playing in the local soccer club, mm. so what? Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. That's my take on it. Um, I, I, I think it's a quite a measured take in trying to help people. And just going back to that change, when there isn't, as I said, someone who walks through the door will get a punch in the nose. But when there's also change, there's some people who lead that change that may actually miss out and not play where they want to play. Right. And you know what? There's not much we can do about that. Mm. And I know lots of sports have different... Uh, views and policies and and all that sort of stuff and you know the AFL have had their policy in since uh, 2017 and when the all the kerfuffle was the AFL didn't say anything people are going well, what did the AFL think just go onto their website and have a look yeah. um, it's already gone through I think one or two reviews that's how far advanced that our game and, and the thinkers um, of our game are. Yeah, and and there's so much more to it as well. We could probably do a whole nother podcast episode on just that topic, but I appreciate uh, your thoughts and your views on that. Now, just before you go, I will just say I've been admiring your ring on your finger. Um, can I please have a little look-see-loo, Donna's 
Donna, can I see yours? Okay, let's talk about this. When did you get engaged? No, not engaged. Okay, well, what what is that doing on that finger then? Um, it's a ring. Okay. Um, but I wear one and Donna wears one. Um, and we get asked all the time. I, I can assure you of this. People can take it for what it means. If we were to get engaged, mm-hmm. the first people would know would be our family and our kids. And they don't know yet. We haven't told them anything. Gotcha. When they know, everyone else will know. You'll give us a call. <laughs> Perhaps stay tuned. <laughs> Danny, thank you so much for joining me and um, being so open and honest and everything you're doing is just absolutely phenomenal and so admirable. Um, So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having uh, myself um, and Donna sitting over there. Um, (laughs) We're very grateful. That was another from Katie Lamb's Personalities. Subscribe to the Rush Hour with Embers and Katie podcast in the Listener app to hear more from Triple M's Rush Hour.